1: To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help because I was like, this could totally ruin my career. Somebody to have a more proactive approach and that he was coming to me to be that person. They found him and he committed suicide. I just started screaming. I just felt responsible.
0: Hello, everybody. I am Tim Lawson, host and founder of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Project. We tell the stories behind veteran suicide. We get stories from veterans, friends and family of veterans, and medical professionals all dwelling on suicidal behavior, losing someone to suicide, treatments that are available or that we're working on. In uh, just a, a bunch of different topics surrounding veteran suicide, as far as transition, sexual assault, PTSD, all this sort of stuff. This is the seventh episode into the series. The past six or the first six have been extremely powerful, as all of you know. If you haven't got a chance to check out the first six, I highly suggest one too many project.com O N E, the number two, many where you can go to. The first six episodes and see some of the other posts from our sponsors and whatnot. It's where all the information is. This week on the show, we're going we're gonna to sort of loosen, we're going to lighten up just a little bit. I have Dr. Craig Bryan uh, on today's show. I've played a few snippets in the past from my interview with him. This week, I'm actually just going to play this interview in its entirety. Uh, we touch a lot on sexual assault, combat related PTSD. The military subculture, treatments, repurposing, employment, all this sort of stuff. It's really good. Dr. Brian had a lot of insight to offer, so I'm excited to get into my interview with him. Uh, And then after the interview, I I will... give a few of my reflections and then and then quickly wrap up as i want to make this sort of a lighter episode uh so so we can uh we can take a break from what honestly is it's definitely a dark topic so i want to make sure that i'm not burying people into the ground with so much weighted information so uh let's get some insight from dr brian and i will reflect after the interview
1: Well, I guess my involvement started when I was active duty. Um, So I served in the Air Force from 2005 to 2009. Um, I did that as a psychologist and uh, then deployed to Iraq in 2009. Uh, And so that was, I think, it was during the deployment to Iraq that um, I would say that my interest in military mental health and suicide, post-traumatic stress disorder, really strengthened. Uh, I was interested in it before, but that's, you know, it just changed my understanding and my relationship uh, with these issues because I was seeing it in a very different way and uh, working with service members in a much different context that really sort of changed the way as a healthcare provider – how I could potentially help and intervene and prevent many of these problems.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to dive into this question because it's the first thing that came to mind uh, this morning when I was conceptual – like when I was really thinking about what I wanted to nail down here. Um, So obviously, you know, you've seen plenty of PTSD, um, both combat-related and um, related to sexual trauma. And I was wondering if there's anything – if anything, you could say that to help compare and contrast those two experiences. Um, how are they similar? Like how is someone who is returning from combat um, and someone who has maybe just been raped? Um, how is their PTSD similar and how how is it different?
1: Yeah, so the kind of the way to think about it is, um, you know, when you talk about PTSD, of course, that is the medical condition or the the uh, the disorder that we use to describe a certain cluster of experiences and symptoms that um, a trauma victim might have. So, to that extent, you know, PTSD is PTSD. The the symptoms are the same. The diagnosis is the same. Um, and the treatment is pretty much the same. Now, of course, some of the differences are related to the nature of the uh, traumatic event itself. And so um, oftentimes, sexual assault victims uh, you know, have been victimized by someone who they know. So there's often a close uh, relationship of some kind uh, with the assailant. And so they're sort of particular form or manifestation of PTSD might entail a sense of betrayal or a sense of loss of trust in others, and they might have difficulty, uh, you know, connecting with others as a result. Uh, Whereas combat PTSD, uh, it might be related more to exposure to death, injury, Um, killing uh, atrocity etc and so there might not be quite that sort of uh, there's there's sort of not that intimate relationship necessarily um, with the source of the trauma although at the same time many combat forms of PTSD are related to the deaths of friends uh, peers etc and so in that sense there is an interpersonal loss although It's there is sort of a qualitative difference between the person who is being aggressive versus the victim or the target of that aggression. Um, Another interesting difference that we sometimes see is that uh, sexual assault um, relative to combat related traumas uh, they tend to occur with different like frequencies or recurrences. So a lot of combat trauma victims, for instance, have been exposed to repeated trauma, repeated death, repeated injury, etc. cetera. Um, whereas with sexual assault victims, you will typically see less frequent instances of victimization. Um, some people uh, tragically are assaulted or raped multiple times. But as a whole, if we look kind of at those two different types of traumas, you would see a lower frequency of repeated sexual assaults in general as opposed to uh, combat forms of trauma.
0: Is there a certain event that's most that's more often connected to um, in a sense of is it loss of a friend? is it just constant sight of death? Is it personal survive like is it survivor's guilt? like is there a certain event from combat that is most often Um, connected to someone's harder struggles or one that may lead to
1: suicide? Um, We've not really done any research on that uh, per se. I I know over the past decade there's been a lot of research that's really focused on just combat exposure as a whole and is that related to suicidal thoughts and behaviors And, and kind of by and large what a lot of studies are suggesting is not very much. Um, and so it hasn't really kind of led to more detailed studies just yet, although I think that is an interesting idea. Um, what we've kind of noticed is the relationship is best seen as uh, you know you know a lot of a lot of the service members that we have worked with had a lot of risk factors for suicide to begin with before they deployed. so they had, you know, difficult upbringings, you know, chaotic families, uh, histories of relationship problems. Some of them, uh, are just very self critical, have a lot of guilt and shame about who they are. And then they deploy to combat and they see things or they do things that reconfirm that sense of defectiveness. So in some cases, it has been that they have, you know, been violent and aggressive, they've killed or they have engaged in combat. And, they kind of feel like that violates their sense of right versus wrong, and so they are ashamed of those activities. Um, we also see uh, very commonly as well, kind of like a survivor guilt where um, individuals feel like they should have been able to do more or should have acted, but did not do so, um, or the outcome was not optimal. So, you know, a friend was severely injured. I provided first aid, but he died anyway. And so I should have been able to do more. I should have done something differently to save his life, et cetera. Um, I think the, one of the common themes that we are starting to see in our research is the importance of guilt and shame. And we're really kind of redirecting a lot of attention to that because we're seeing, uh, we're, we're really getting a lot of, you know, really good information. It's really accounting for a lot. And so whether that is somebody w- who regrets a decision that they made, um, or who, yeah, questions, why did I survive when nobody else did? These are all different sort of dimensions of guilt, but we're finding that guilt is really, really powerful, especially amongst those who have deployed.
0: Do you? Th- i mean like is it just a constant torment of guilt and negative emotions is it um a sense of abandonment where they can't find empathy that they need to help get through it's like what's then what part of that experience that guilt or whatever may be connected to their deployment is actually
1: allowing them to consider suicide so it's it's probably a combination of factors um where what we are starting to see, um, is, is like I said, so some individuals kind of have a high, uh, self criticalness as it is. So they think that there's something wrong with them, that they, uh, you know, that they're embarrassed about who they are, that they make mistakes often, they can't be relied upon, et cetera. So it's kind of like this just, I'm not a good person m- mindset. Um, and then what can happen is then they get into, Combat and you know that ends up strengthening uh, kind of these, these sense, this sense of self hatred. And then when they return, what we are seeing is that uh, it's that sense of isolation and feeling like other people don't understand me, um, I don't have anyone to talk to. Um, and that's where we start to see the emergence of suicidal thoughts. Um, I think another important dynamic to think of that we've also been looking at sort of how a service member's or combat veteran's understanding of combat changes over time. So for instance, when you're in combat, combat is normal. That's just your life, right? I mean that's what you do on a day-to-day basis and so there's not necessarily anything pathological about it. We think this is why uh, in some surveys, when you look at military personnel who are deployed, you really don't see a relationship between combat exposure and and suicidality at all. Now, over time, as they transition back into non-war zones, so back in the United States or wherever their home station is – Now all of a sudden they find themselves in an environment where very few people have actually been through the same experiences as them and so they don't necessarily feel like they fit in and that other people can't relate to them. And as that sense of isolation and detachment um, and that sense of I need to turn into myself because I have nobody else to turn to, as that grows – the service member looks back on their combat experiences and says, you know what, that doesn't seem quite so normal anymore. And that's where we can start to see some difficulties where they start to think about it repeatedly. They start to withdraw from others. Some of them will start to abuse substances. They start to become depressed and hopeless. And it kind of snowballs. And and the real challenge is that as they start to accumulate more and more of these difficulties, it tends to magnify the problem so they become even more socially isolated even more withdrawn and they start to criticize themselves
0: how dramatic of a difference do you think or have you noticed maybe if you've got a chance to observe this is a member of the you know the military that's suffering from this sort of ptsd especially combat related and i mean how how dramatic of a change is it once they separate from from the military because and I and I ask this because a lot so far the trend on the people I've talked to, especially you know like especially veterans, is it was the first six months out of the military that they that they struggled the most. Um, so I was so um, you know is it are we allowing are we making veterans more vulnerable by letting them transition out of the military while still seriously suffering from PTSD? <laughs>
1: Well, I think, um, you know, so it kind of, of course, varies from individual to individual. But what I have found is that in those those young veterans, um, so those who have recently transitioned out of the military and who are struggling with mental health problems, they very much uh, do report, uh, you know, difficulties in transition. And, you know, and I think you have to kind of look at this from the bigger picture, which is that the military System is a unique subculture within the larger culture of the United States. And so, uh, you know, in the military, we do things differently. We have different rules, different expectations, different values, um, different beliefs about how things are supposed to be done than, you know, in the general population. And so When you kind of shift from one world to another, that can be quite dramatic. And so you can often feel like a fish out of water in essence because now you have to learn a whole new set of rules, a whole new set of values, a whole new set of social norms that you haven't necessarily been able to practice uh, on your day-to-day basis. And so that – that shift, that conflict between the military identity versus, in essence, the civilian identity, um, for some is not as easy to resolve as it is for others. And we are finding now in in, in some of our research that those who struggle with those kind of dual identities and transitioning or integrating uh, these two different sides of who they are, are the ones who have um, a lot of emotional distress and they do feel isolated from others.
0: Sort of the same set of questions, um, but now a little bit more focused on sexual trauma. Um, so going back to that first question of you know certain experience that um, that creates stronger or more dangerous PTSD. Is there a certain uh, is there a certain experience in sexual trauma a certain event that creates a stronger more dangerous PTSD?
1: You know, when you look at the relationship between any traumatic event, whether it's sexual assault or combat exposure, um, we don't fully understand the mechanisms for why the trauma is related to suicide risk. A, a few theories have been proposed, and unfortunately right now sort of we have conflicting evidence Uh, from scientific studies. And so, um, and I think all of them are partially right, and maybe all of them are partially wrong at the same time. So, for instance, when we look at something like sexual assault, Um, there is oftentimes a sense of, uh, well, when you look at PTSD following sexual assault, um, you'll have sleep problems, uh, agitation, kind of feeling on edge, not feeling safe around others. And so we know that agitation and insomnia are extremely powerful predictors of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And so maybe there's something related to that edginess that's accounting for the relationship. We also know and after a sexual assault, uh, people tend to withdraw from others. Uh, it negatively affects their social relationships and intimate relationships. And we also know that. Problems with social relationships are related to uh, suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Uh, There's often a lot of self-blame as well, um, misplaced self-blame in sexual assault victims where um, they will assume or perceive that they must have done something to deserve it or they should have behaved or done something in a different way to prevent the attack from happening and so they end up Sort of blaming themselves. And we know that that guilt and that shame associated with assault are also very powerful drivers of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, and so, of course, you know, with that latter piece, I think the biggest tragedy is that, of course, a, a sexual assault victim is not at fault uh, for what has happened to them. But from their perspective, um, some of them will actually perceive that, and there is some research suggesting that that might explain why some sexual assault victims are more likely to think about suicide. Do you,
0: is there a do do sexual assault victims from you know, just from what you've been able to observe respond better to empathy or sympathy? Would they rather talk to those who have experienced it, or would they rather, Um, to talk to those who are
1: caring and willing to understand I would say that in my experience most if not all sexual assault victims want the latter they want someone who cares about them um, and who listens without judgment and who is warm and compassionate so the empathy Uh, however there are differences in what sexual assault victims desire or prefer related to your first Uh, dimension, which is that notion of has somebody been through it myself? Um, And so you'll have some victims who feel more comfortable talking with someone else who has been a victim themselves because they feel like there's sort of a shared experience and they feel more safety or comfort um, in that relationship, whereas others will say, no, I don't want to talk to another victim. Um, And then you have others who say it doesn't really matter to me who I talk to, whether or not they've had the same experience. But the the universal trend in my experience is they all want someone to be compassionate, non-judgmental, and caring.
0: Um, okay. So then, you know, for on con- considering both um, both sides, combat and sexual trauma, um, of course the, you know, the whole purpose of, um, of the One Too Many project is – you know, the idea that there is resolution, that there is something, there's there's a, um, a proactive uh, move or action that we can take as members of society, as friends and family members, as active duty military that we can take to help either prevent it from happening or catch it before it's fatal. So, I mean, is there anything that you can add? Is there anything that you've noticed? Is there any You know, in all of your studies, is there a sense of optimism that you've seen that that we can make progress on this?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, we just finished our first treatment study. We're working on writing up the results now, so it'll be out in the next year. Um, uh, The treatment that we developed uh, reduces suicide attempts by 60% in active-duty military personnel. Um, And we're running another study right now and the preliminary outcomes for that are also extremely promising. Some interventions work better than others at fostering protective factors. Uh, and one one protective factor we're looking at in particular is uh, reasons for living. Um, and so we – a part of the treatment process is not only just reducing depression and reducing, you know, sleep problems, basically getting rid of the bad stuff. What we also do in these treatments are we foster – Strengths uh, of service members. So, we help them to solve problems, to be more effective, to see themselves in more positive lights, to be more optimistic about life, and to flexibly adapt to problems as they arise. And we now have the data that actually confirms that this works and it's remarkably effective. We are seeing reductions in suicide attempts as fast as 6 months following the start of treatment and that effect lasts for up to 2 years um, which is when we stop doing follow up so we don't know what happens after that but for at least 2 years following treatment we see significant reductions in suicide attempts
0: so I, i'm i'm really glad that I'm really glad that that's the point that you had to make.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you know, we're, we're definitely excited. You know, it was one of those things four years ago when we started, you know, we certainly expected this to be the outcome, but it's a uh, uh, very different once you actually analyze the data, crunch the numbers and find out that, wow, it, that's actually true. And that there are relatively simple, I mean, the, the treatment's not complex and it's not very time consuming. And I think. You know, the work that I have done over the past few years, particularly with the military, really has opened my eyes to the importance, or I guess maybe not the importance, but the power of very small, simple things that can have dramatic impact on uh, people's lives. And so it's when I teach and when I talk about uh, the treatments, With other mental health professionals, students, et cetera, overwhelmingly the response we get is, well, but that's so simple and so straightforward. And, you know, and, and that is kind of I think the good news is that simple things do save lives. Unfortunately, we aren't very good yet at just kind of boiling it down to these very simple things and then doing them and doing them effectively and doing them reliably and sticking with it and not getting distracted.
0: I think that – I think the effectiveness is is the key there because uh, I remember being in the Marine Corps and, you know, there was suicide prevention briefs and safety stand-downs. And, you know, I remember seeing these, like, high high-cost production videos being put out about PTSD and suicide and that people are here for you. And I'm like, I get what you're trying to say, but we know – we know that this is the case. We don't need the military or the government to tell us that it sucks coming back from the deployments and that we're going to be depressed about it. You know, That's not the message that we need to hear. We need to hear about how we can not be this way. And like yeah. we don't need to be made aware that th- that this is going to happen and that people care about it. We need to know about how we can prevent this from happening or how to yeah. overcome it. And I think that's where the military, for lack of a better word, that's where they suck right now. Is It's almost like they're trying to create awareness for the cliche term, they're preaching to the choir about, you know, what's what's happening. Like we know this is a problem. Like please help us not <laughs> not want to kill ourselves.
1: Well well and I think, you know, something else that a lot of you know kind of the approach that we take as well is you know, we we need to start looking at these problems from the perspective of the service member. And so I think for too long, and th- I think this is this is a problem of society as a whole. It's not just in the military. In this sense, the military is kind of just a microcosm of our larger society, is that we look at problems like PTSD and suicide from a very heavily medical mindset. And these are legitimately healthcare problems. Um, But I think we need to look at this not only from a larger social and societal perspective, but we also need to understand and appreciate the military culture itself. And so here it's like if if we want to prevent suicide in the military, you know, we can't come into an organization that you know, has certain values about self-sacrifice, about um, emotional suppression, uh, self-reliance, you know, placing other goals or other ideals above one's own well-being and safety um, with a group of people who have been trained to tolerate pain at a higher Level than what most Americans are trained or experience, or to walk or run towards sources of violence and aggression, as opposed to running away or cowering and hunkering down. And I think we have largely failed to take those types of dynamics into consideration, which is why, by and large, I think service members. I remember when I was in the military, I felt the same way. It was like, roll your eyes every time you get a mental health briefing or something like that, because it wasn't connecting with the identity of the men and women that were supposed to be trying to help. And so we're learning now in what many of these programs are that we've been doing, especially this treatment that we've developed. We're bringing it and kinda of manipulating it and changing it so that it fits within the military culture and when we introduce it to service members it doesn't seem like a foreign concept. It seems very operational, and it aligns with their sense of identity, whatever their particular profession or their career field is within the military. And we've translated the concepts into ideas and language that we use in the military, and we've sort of scrapped all of the medical uh, language And what we find is that when we take this approach of more of a I'm going to make you bigger, faster, and stronger and help you to, to do things that right now you feel like you can't do, even though you're perfectly capable of doing it, you just don't realize it yet, it ends up resonating and it's accepted much more so um, by our patients. And that's the feedback that we've been overwhelmingly receiving from our patients after they received the treatment I mean, they just say we've. I've never received anything like this before, and this is how we should be doing mental health care in the military.
0: So, one thing that, uh, so a stat that recently came out in the past. Well, I, I mean, something that's been a little bit more publicized um, within journalism and um, you know in society is the fact that um, of the veteran the military veteran suicides that we're seeing and that are being reported that actually over 60% of them are veterans over 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the answer to this question is yes, but we just got to make sure is this same treatment you're talking about just as effective, is effective regardless of age?
1: Yeah, so primarily we have enrolled um, service members younger than 50 Um, And so I I can't necessarily say this is exactly how well it compares to a younger audience. Um, However, what we do know is that we're not seeing any age effects within our study. And actually, when we take age into account, it it actually does not change um, the results that we're finding. Um, And we're also looking, if we look at non-military samples as well, so Our treatment um, is a modification of a treatment that was actually developed in uh, civilian samples and uh, an older civilian sample. And our treatment works uh, just as well as this other treatment that was done in an older civilian sample. So although we don't have like firm numbers and tables where we can give you an exact statistic, Based on the patterns of data that we have, we are fairly confident that it works just as well uh, with older veterans as it does with younger veterans.
0: Okay. And um, is is this whole concept uh, – does it directly translate over to veterans who have experienced sexual trauma as well?
1: Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Actually, um, we had um, – in our study, we had several service members who were victims of military sexual trauma, uh, and we had both men and women. Um, so they actually responded very positively to the treatment, um, and I can think of one in particular. We had a male victim, and you know he was extremely highly suicidal, had attempted suicide a few times, and um, recovered very nicely um, in the treatment. And really, kind of he he was one of those at at the end of the treatment had those sort of positive words to say, is like you know, I wish this had been available to me a year before, you know, a year before we started this up um, when I was first sexually assaulted because he thinks it would have changed the course of his life.
0: Is is there anything showing um, gender? Because, you know, obviously, we, um, you know, we all understand that um, males who experience sexual trauma, there's a little bit more shame and guilt involved. Um, I mean, I mean, that's I, I suppose that's actually just an assumption that I'm making. But um, is you know, are males more likely to consider suicide than females with when it comes to sexual trauma, or vice versa?
1: Yeah, we've uh, we actually have a paper that's uh, been submitted. It's it's not been published yet. Um, looking at gender differences and sexual assault in a sample of military personnel and veterans. And we've actually – we actually found a rather interesting gender difference. And we're wondering um, if this will be replicated by others or in another study that we'll do in the future. Um, What we found was that when we looked at men versus women, uh, we also – well, let me back up a little bit. So we looked at not only gender but also – what type of sexual assault it was. So was it a military sexual trauma or was it a non-military sexual trauma? So for most subjects or most service members, if you were sexually assaulted outside of the military, like before or after, it was usually as a child, right? So someone was uh, sexually assaulted, child abuse victim, and then they subsequently joined the military, Um, And so when we kind of compare sort of the source of the assailment, what we found, uh, which was very interesting, was for female uh, veterans and service members, it was sexual assault that occurred prior to joining the military that was most strongly related to uh, uh, suicidal thoughts and behaviors. For male veterans, it was sexual assault that occurred during the military as well as before the military that was most strongly related and so we definitely saw that in in essence if a male veteran is sexually assaulted while in military service they are much more likely to think about suicide and make a suicide attempt Um, and we saw a similar pattern in women but it wasn't nearly as pronounced as it was for men
0: um, because, so what about a comparison with, uh, so, you know, both genders already in the military, is there a comparison of if their assailant was a fellow service member versus a civilian?
1: So I'm trying to think of how we looked at it. Again, it was, um, so we, I don't think we were able to fully answer the question because, there again, there were gender differences. So, So for women, if they are sexually assaulted while in the military, I think what we found was like 95% of the time their assailant was another service member. That's gross. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it violates, um, and and this is why we think military sexual trauma is perhaps qualitatively different from other forms of trauma is because of the sense of betrayal uh, that can come from it. Now male victims when they are sexually assaulted in the military interestingly what we found was that only 50 percent said it was another uh, service member okay so i mean it's still a high percentage but it's very different so it's it's in essence if a female service member is probably going to be Um, there, if they're assaulted, it's probably going to be another service member. If it's a male service member, it's about a 50 50 split between service member versus a non-service member. Right. And we don't fully understand why that might be. Um, we have some ideas, but I don't think we'll be able to uh, explore them in this particular study that we looked at, but we're hoping we might be able to uncover the answers to that in future research studies.
0: Okay. Um so obviously you know we talked about how you know being able to repurpose yourself is a you know is an effective way to you know distract from suicidal thoughts and overcome them and something that has sort of been not really you know it's not something that many employers are willing to admit to but something that's sort of been wondered or assumed is that employers may find or may fear that a combat veteran um, who may or may not suffer from PTSD could be considered a liability to their their company. Um, so do you think that this myth is sort of a bust in the sense that being employed would help repurpose that veteran's life and therefore be sort of dual effective in the sense that hmm. they're getting a veteran with effective disciplines and, and skills and traits while at the same time helping this um, helping someone who... Even if they are suffering from PTSD, recover from that.
1: Oh yeah, actually, there have been studies uh, that demonstrate that that um, having meaningful, gainful employment is associated with decreased uh, mental health problems in veterans. And so, I mean, it's actually it's it's not just um, an idea; it's actually a, a scientifically supported fact. Perfect. Um, and the the struggle is, of course, that some employers, of course, worry about. Um, how the you know the perceived supposedly volatile veteran will perform in the workplace Um, and what's quite amazing is that what we find is that treating veterans with respect and giving them meaningful work actually reduces likelihood of those problems that people are so afraid of and so I think we sometimes get ourselves into this sort of vicious circle where we're chasing our tails, you know, where the where the thing that we're afraid of can be resolved by the very issue that we want to avoid, you know, in the first place. And so um, it ends up being quite tragic. And we've, you know, I've, I've seen personally um, with veterans who work with us and Um, the research that we do is that that sense of purpose and meaning is absolutely critical and having someone, uh, uh, you know, a supervisor, a boss, you know, just an organization that you can work for and that you can really kind of pour your energy into is absolutely, I think, critical for recovering, for success. Wonderful.
0: So my my last, I guess my last question uh, before we wrap up would be um, you know, obviously we've we've hit on a lot of great points. This is some amazing insight and obviously very credible um considering um your education and your profession. Uh so I mean is there is there anything else now that you've sort of gotten a um, in sort of a glimpse at the questions I'm trying to get answered and the information and the insight that I'm trying to exp- to trying to put out there, is there anything else that I haven't asked about or hasn't been touched on that you think is important for
1: people to know? I think so. I mean, I, I think um, kind of like what you said before, I think it is important for people um, to realize that there actually is uh, a, a very good reason to be hopeful and optimistic. Um, you know, I think over the past 10 years, those of us Who have been in the military, you know, who have worked with service members and veterans have really, I think, had fair reason to be demoralized, uh, to say the least, uh, to kind of uh, actually understate the problem. Um, but we are now getting to a point where many of the studies that we've been working on for years are wrapping up and we are finding extremely positive results. Um, whether it's related to suicide, there are treatment studies that are now wrapping up showing that so the therapies that work in civilian populations for PTSD are extremely effective with military personnel veterans as well. And so really the rule is recovery, you know, and, and the rule is also living a life that is very high quality and that's worth living. Um, and now where I think we are at as a society is now transitioning these results into making sure that everybody kind of knows how to do it so that, as you said, it's not just awareness anymore. Now it's implementation and action to positively impact the lives of military personnel and veterans.
0: Let's say that a first sergeant of you know in the military is listening um, to this podcast right now, and they're trying and they think this is great. They think they, they want to implement this in their unit. Um, should is this something they need to be addressing as soon as an event occurs? Like is this some like is this treatment that they can like, as soon as they get off the boat back from deployment they start doing this, or is this something that should be focused more uh, during steps, taps, and, and the transition
1: out of the military? Yeah, so so the treatment that we developed is actually, so it'd be in the mental health care system itself. So this would be something that we would want to do when a service member is reporting or describing thoughts of suicide, or if they have already taken steps, they've already made a suicide attempt. That is where it's like, you know, we need to get people connected to these treatments. Um, now, what we're working on is the next step is in what do we do before that attempt is made, right? Um, so or before the thoughts first emerge? And actually that's the the study that we're doing right now um, is to figure out, you know, before the event occurs, What is the way to strengthen a person's desire to live, uh, their hope for the future, Um, and their ability to tolerate and to effectively cope with life problems that occur. Um, And like I said, the good news is the preliminary results are very promising, uh, but we still got a little ways to go before we can definitively answer that question.
0: The insight that Dr. Brian has offered is really fantastic, and I think it was cool hearing about some of the uh you know the 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 realities of PTSD when re, when related to sexual trauma and combat related cool in the sense that i think it's actually beneficial for us to realize that there that while the cause may be different and the experience is definitely different that you know it's it's diagnosed the same and treated the same and i think that it's important to know that because when we have these conversations with each other my PTSD and your PTSD don't have to be from the same cause for us to talk about our problems and our and how we 're going to recover from it uh, you know the military is definitely a unique subculture uh, that has a whole new set of norms uh, that makes the shift into being a civilian difficult and being able to identify with being something other than um, a military member is challenging and uh, like like dr. Brian mentioned it's important for uh, you know, for that transition to be successful, both uh, on the surface level of, you know, getting getting the job and the family role and everything in place, but also a deeper meaning of being able to identify with this new person that you've become or this new person that you're transitioning into becoming um, and letting that sort of be part of your healing process. So uh, big thanks to Dr. Brian for, for for coming on. Um, You can check out more. Uh, If you're interested in Dr. Brian, you want to see more of what he's doing, you can simply go to veterans.utah.edu. It's where a lot of the information on what they're doing there on the Veterans Study side, University of Utah, which he is a part of. So um, you check that out, support him. Hopefully, maybe later down the line I can get uh, another interview with him. We get sort of a, a deeper look into one of these specific subjects um one too many is uh slash itunes is where you can subscribe on itunes if you'd like to get these updated every week thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed today's slightly lighter episode i will see you next week